And if you have your Bible, take it out and open it up to page one. If you don't have your Bible, you can uh, take the Bible out from the seat back in front of you. We're looking at Genesis 1, the very first chapter of the Bible, easy to find. One time, uh, an eager young man was applying for a job on a logging crew out west, and uh, he interviewed, and the interview was short and simple. The foreman handed him a new axe and said, let's see you cut down this tree. And uh, the young man skillfully and quickly felled the tree, and he was hired on the spot. He started the following Monday. He worked Monday, he worked Tuesday, he worked Wednesday and Thursday. And Thursday afternoon, the foreman approached him and said, you can pick up your paycheck on the way out today. And the man said, wait, I don't understand. I thought we got paid on Friday. And the foreman said, well, yeah, normally we do, but we're letting you go because you've fallen behind. On Monday, you felled as many trees as, as the best of our guys, but, but by this morning, you were dead last on your count. But I'm a hard worker, the young man objected. I, I arrive first, I leave last, I even work through my coffee breaks. Well, the foreman sensed that the boy was being honest, and, and so he thought for a minute, and then he asked, have you been sharpening your axe? And the young man replied, no, I've been working too hard, I haven't had time. In my last couple messages, we've been talking about life rhythms. We've been remembering together that life can't be one continual mad rush of work and activity, that life has to be a rhythm, a rhythm of work and rest, a rhythm of hopefully fruitful activity, as well as taking time apart to remain in Christ. Or to go with the lumberjack analogy, a rhythm of felling trees and stopping to sharpen your axe. Last Sunday, I introduced the phrase rule of life to describe our plan or our pattern for a life which has rhythm. And today, I want to look at scripture beginning in Genesis 1 to see that rhythm is what we've been created for and that God has woven rhythm into the very fabric of creation itself. As I hope you heard as, as Debbie read Genesis 1 so well, that uh, Genesis 1 is a text that's rich with rhythm. You, you could almost, maybe as you were listening and hearing it read, almost hear it tapping out the time. And it's been given to us, among other reasons, to orient us to keep time and to tell time for us. Now, since the days of Darwin, we Christians have been taught to put on our scientific lenses as we read Genesis 1. Um, but I'd like to invite you to leave those scientific lenses aside for this morning because this morning I'd like us to put on another set of lenses and that's our musical lenses. Listen to the rhythm. And God said, and it was so, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. This chapter is brimming, brimming with time and with repetition. Evening and morning the first day. Evening and morning the second day all the way up to evening and morning, the sixth day. And then on the seventh day, there's rest. By the seventh day, God has finished his work. So on the seventh day, God rested from his work and God blessed the seventh day. And three times it repeats, seventh day, seventh day, seventh day. Can you hear the rhythm? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven, seven. Notice also that on days three and six, there's a double creation. 
Day three, verse nine, and God said, and God made land. Verse 11, and God said, and God made vacation. Or not vacation, vegetation. <laughs> we'll get to, we get to va vacation on the seventh day. Vegetation. <laughs> Freudian slip, you know. So that's day three. Then on day six, verse 24, and God said, and God made the animals. Verse 26, it was verse 24, now verse 26, and God said, and God made humans. So God created the world in six days. On days three and six, God created twice. Then on the seventh, he rested. One, two, three, three. Four, five, six, six. Seven, seven, seven. Do you hear the rhythm? Within this main rhythm, there are various other sub-rhythms going on. And, and here's where, if you like to count, it gets fun. Seven times God calls his creation good. During the first three days, four times God separates, and five times God calls. Then during the second three days, four times God sees, and five times God makes. Three times in a three-line poem, the text celebrates that God created man and woman. And three times God blesses. There's a lot of rhythm. There are other rhythms, too, if we had more time we could go into. Eugene Peterson, who translated the message paraphrase of the Bible, says, when we speak this text aloud or, or, get to, or listen to it being spoken, the text gets inside of us. We, we enter the rhythms of creation time, and we find that we are internalizing a creation sense of orderliness and connectedness and resonance that is very much like what we get from music. Old Testament scholar Bruce Walke conveys the, the musical and rhythmic character of Genesis by naming this text the libretto of all of Israel's life. Think of Genesis 1 as an opera or an oratorio of creation life. As we get this text, this libretto, into our way of being, these rhythms get into us. Now, let's look at time in Genesis 1 from a different angle. Here's a diagram that I used to summarize what God did when he created from the perspective of Genesis 1. Days 1 to 3 on the left-hand side there, um, from bottom to top, are about God making order out of chaos, from the, the formlessness and the voidness uh, when things began. Everything's jumbled together in, in a mess, and God separates it out on the first three days. God separates darkness from light. God separates sky from sea. God separates sea from land. Then on days four to six, on the right going up, God then goes back and fills those empty spaces that he separated out. God fills day and night with heavenly bodies. God fills sky and sea with birds and fish. And God fills land with animals and with humankind. Cool, huh, the way that it's structured. Let's focus in now on day four on the bottom right. This is where God makes sun, moon, and stars. And, and what does the text tell us is the purpose for which God made these heavenly bodies? Well, verse 14, to separate the day from the night, to mark the seasons and the days and the years. Verse 15, to give light on the earth. And verse 16, to govern the day and the night. In other words, the lights exist to give rhythm to the earth and the life on it. The, the earth and the solar system we are part of have rhythm too. Like a giant clock keeping time, ticking out day by day, month by month, year by year. 
God created out of the chaos a world full of rhythm, keeping time to God's creation time. Now back in the days that Genesis 1 was written, it was important for people to know that these heavenly bodies that were created on the fourth day were objects that God had created because the surrounding peoples viewed the heavenly bodies as gods and in many cases they, they feared them. And, and so along with those pagan peoples, God's people were tempted to worship the heavenly bodies. But, but today, our temptation isn't, isn't to worship the heavenly bodies. We're not generally, we don't normally fear them. Uh, but rather, our temptation is to ignore them. To, to throw off their governance and to get on with life without them. Genesis 1 says that God set them in the heavens to mark seasons and days and years and to govern day and night. And yet our temptation is to write off these bodies as just mere natural phenomenon. They're just there to be uh, studied and explained and perhaps even conquered. But surely not to tell us how we're supposed to live our lives. And so we undo the separation of day and night. We ignore the rhythms of days and weeks and seasons. And as we do, our lives return to chaos. For us, time becomes a, a chartless waste with, with little rhythm or structure to it. Day bleeds into night as tungsten and halogen usurp the role of sun. Soccer and shift work overrun Sabbath. Hallmark outmarkets holy days. Creation undone, rhythm ruined, chaos and disorientation return. That's the world we live in, isn't it? And what are we to do about it? Well, hold on, we'll get to that. But first, let's see how this idea of rhythm continues as we read through our Bibles. In the Old Testament, God instituted a, a life rhythm for his people, and it looked like this. Each day began at sundown. You know that, right? It, it didn't begin at midnight or at daybreak, but rather it began at sundown. There were no light bulbs back then, and, and so when it got dark, people came in from the fields, and they settled in at home, in their, their uh, homestead or in their, their village for quiet relational time with family, with neighbors, and then for sleep. Thus, the first act of, of every day wasn't to get up and work, but instead it was to stop and to trust, to, to leave the running of the world in God's hands until morning, and only then to go out and join in what God was doing. That was the way the Hebrew day was scheduled. Six days were days to live by this rhythm of, of relationships and rest and sleep and then work. But the seventh day was special. It was a, a day of rest, a, a weekly Sabbath. The Ten Commandments recorded in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5 set this day in stone, literally. In, in Exodus 20, the fourth commandment commanded us to rest on the seventh day because God rested. Thus, we were to imitate to God, to get our life in sync with God's life, to get our rhythms in sync with God's creation rhythm. In Deuteronomy 5, the fourth commandment commanded us to rest and to allow our slaves and animals to rest because we had been redeemed. You see, Israel were once slaves in Egypt, and, and there they served a godless king who, who never gave them a day off, week after week, year after year. But now God's people serve the Lord, a good king, 
a king who not only rescued them from slavery, but who gave them a weekend, a Sabbath day as a gift, a day off, a day to rest from their work and to celebrate and to enjoy. Genesis 2, 2 and 3 says that God blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. To bless it is, is to fill it with goodness and with life and with prosperity and with vitality. To uh, make it holy is to, to purify it, to set it apart from common use for a special purpose. Nobody's written more insightfully and powerfully about the Sabbath than Abraham Heschel in his book entitled The Sabbath, Its Meaning for Modern Man. Heschel captures the biblical focus well of the Sabbath being a gift, a day of, of feasting and joy. In fact, Heschel describes the Sabbath as a palace in time, a palace in time. A palace that we enter once a week as we, as we journey through time to stop and rest and enjoy God's blessings before we continue our journey. Yet he says it, it's a palace that we must build. All of the raw materials are, are put there by God, but we have to make something of them. Eugene Peterson, who's also written very helpfully about the Sabbath, summarizes how we build this palace with two verbs, play and pray. We play. We, we, we take time to, to recreate, to relate. We make room for, for breaking bread, for fellowship, for friends. Uh, we, we celebrate, we feast, we have fun with, with family or friends. And not just any kind of fun, because some kinds of fun stress us out. They, they clutter our lives. They pull us away from God and into self-absorption. Sabbath funds, fun needs to connect us with God and with his community and, and with his creation. It needs to restore our souls and to inspire us to the second part of Sabbath, which is pray. And Peterson doesn't mean we spend half the day asking God for things. Rather, he means that that we, excuse me, do things that are God-focused and God-attuned. Reading the Bible, gathering with God's people, meditating, praying, worshiping. And of course, as Jesus taught us, there's always room for doing good and for helping those in need on the Sabbath as well. Okay, so God set out for his people this daily rhythm of rest and work and this weekly rhythm of rest and work. He also gave his people seasonal rhythms. The, the Old Testament um, New Year was in the springtime. And, and the high point of the New Year was Passover. It was a, a family holiday celebrated each April. And, and Passover night uh, kicked off a week-long Sabbath feast called the Feast of Unleavened Bread, a celebration of beginnings. Most importantly, it, it recounted the celebration of the beginning of God's people, the beginning of their salvation as they remembered God's delivering them from Egypt. They also celebrated the beginning of the new year at that time of year. And, and finally, they celebrated the beginning of the barley harvest, a very important time in the agricultural calendar for them. Fifty days later, in May or June, was the Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost. This was another week-long harvest celebration, rounding out the barley harvest and anticipating the wheat harvest. Maybe kind of like our Thanksgiving or an Oktoberfest, a time when food was plentiful, when people praised God for another year's bounty. And so that was in May or June. Then in September, it was time for the grape and the olive harvests. In early September, there was a special day off. It was called the, the Feast of Trumpets. Then nine days later was, was the High Holy Day, the Day of Atonement, 
a day of fasting and repentance, a day to, to seek and to receive God's forgiveness for your sins. And then four days later, there was another week-long celebration, the Feast of Tabernacles, another great harvest celebration, which also remembered um, Israel's days of wandering in the wilderness. And, and I'm sure they were all the more thankful now to be eating the good produce of God's promised land as they were remembering when they wandered in the desert. So each year, Israel enjoyed these seasonal rhythms of, of work and rest, of, of labor and of celebration. They were in tune with the seasons. They were in tune with the, the land that they depended on. And, and they were in tune with what God had done for them and, and the blessings of God that they relied upon. And all this was governed by the sun and the moon and the stars, that cosmic time clock that God had put in place to give their lives and yours rhythm. All right, but here's the question. You, you may be asking yourself, that's all Old Testament stuff. How does it apply to us now that Jesus has come, right? The New Testament teaches that Jesus fulfilled many of those Old Testament ceremonies and traditions. In fact, Paul says clearly in Romans 7 that the Old Testament law, which laid out this whole calendar, is no longer binding for us. If you have your Bible, uh, turn to Romans 7. Romans 7, starting in verse 2, we read, For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law that binds her to him. Then jumping down to verse 4. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another. And then down in verse 6. We have been released from the law so that we might serve in the new way of the spirit, not in the old way of the written code. Paul's arguing here that, that just as a woman whose husband dies is free from, from that marriage to her first husband, she's free to marry another, so we also have died with Christ to, to all that Old Testament law and we're free to live for another, to, to live for Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. Now, why would God go and repeal his Old Testament law? If the law was, was so good and, and so wonderful and it expressed God's heart and God's will about how God's people were to live, why take it off the books? Well, very briefly, let me give you three reasons. First, we now have something better. We, we now have the Holy Spirit, God's own presence, not only to teach us what's right, but, but to give us the desire and the will and the strength to do it. Second, the law was in certain ways culturally bound. It, it certainly embodied and still embodies God's eternal and, and unchanging and true will for humankind, but, but it was packaged, it was enculturated to teach God's people and to provide a government for the Jewish people. I'm sorry, to teach God's ways and to provide a government for the, the Jewish people. A tribal, agrarian, Middle Eastern theocracy several thousand years ago. So we read things like, don't cook a goat in its mother's milk, and we think, what are they talking about? It was enculturated. Times have changed. Circumstances have changed. God's will hasn't changed, but the details of how that will works out in life 
are, are now very different in some cases. Third, related to this, God's law got in the way of God's mission to share Christ's love with all of the nations. Because the law contained a certain amount of cultural baggage and it got in the way of people who didn't grow up Jewish coming to accept Jesus. It was hard for Romans or for Greeks or for Chinese or for Americans who had spent their whole lives eating one way and dressing one way and celebrating one way to suddenly completely change their whole culture and become Jewish. And so God decided that that wasn't necessary because being Jewish wasn't the issue. Following Christ was, and so the law got put aside. And yet the law still contains God's will for us. It's a veritable wealth of, of wisdom and teaching about who God is and, and what God wants for us and how we're to live. And, and so what are we to do with the law today? Well, this question is no thornier than when it comes to the issue of Sabbath. I mean, think of the Ten Commandments. Uh, don't worship idols. Do not murder. Do not steal. And these commands are, are, are no-brainers. They're reiterated in the New Testament. They clearly still apply to us today. But, but what about the fourth commandment? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Is that still what God wants from us? Let me put it another way. Does, does the order and the rhythm of creation still matter? Or has the coming of Jesus made all of life one big Sabbath rest for us? Well, these are tough questions, and, and Christians don't all agree on how to answer them. To help us, though, let's look at two other relevant New Testament texts here. The first is in Paul's letter to Colossians 2. You don't need to turn there if you don't want. It's on the screen, verses 16 and 17. Paul says, Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Paul is saying here that these Old Testament holy days point us toward Christ. Hebrews 4 puts it this way. It, it says that, that these Old Testament days teach us that we need to rest from our work. And Jesus is the ultimate rest from all of our works to gain God's acceptance through our own efforts by trying harder. Because Jesus now can forgive our sins and make us completely and forever right with God. And, and so we can put our trust in Jesus and we can enjoy permanent Sabbath. We can, we can live by grace and not by works. We can rest. And so Paul says, we, now that we've got Jesus now, the true Sabbath... The days which symbolized Sabbath now become secondary. And so in Romans 14.5, our second New Testament text, Paul says, Some consider one day more sacred than another. Others consider every day alike. Everyone should be fully convinced in their own mind. Paul here is most likely addressing the diversity of the church in Rome, who he's writing to, and the tensions that have, have um come with that diversity. There are Jews there who considered the Old Testament days more sacred than other days. And there are Gentiles there in that church who didn't grow up with the Old Testament, so they weren't used to keeping the Sabbath or, or the Feast of Tabernacles or any of those other days. They were used to keeping Roman holidays. And, and Paul says that either way is okay as long as your mind is made up before God so that your conscience is clear. 
So here's the key question for us. Does that mean that we have freedom now in Christ to throw off all the rhythms of creation and to just live however we want? Well, here's my answer. If your relationship with Jesus is so vital and vibrant that you walk around in a constant state of Sabbath rest and peace, then sure, you can do without God's rhythms. But for the rest of us Jesus followers, <laughs> who still get overworked, who get stressed, who get anxious and exhausted, and we're still tempted, we're tempted still to, to not trust God and, and to make work an idol, we would do well to realize that until Jesus comes back and resurrects us into the new creation, while we still live in this old creation, we still live best when we live by its rhythms. And while the details of the Old Testament calendar may not be binding on us anymore, the principles are still valid for us. The Old Testament is clear that we were made for rhythm and that we don't do very well, that, that our lives revert to chaos without rhythm. We still have the, the sun and the moon and the stars shining down on us if we stop long enough to go out and look at them. And they're still testifying to us that we're not invincible, that we're not indestructible, that we're not made to, to work on and on like crazy, that we're creatures made with limits, made to trust God. And in fact, when we insist on working on and on, what we're really doing is, is we're thumbing our noses at God. We're saying, we don't need you and we don't trust you. You, you can't help us. We've got to do it ourselves. We don't have time to rest. And sometimes it takes a heart attack or, or a broken marriage before we wake up to the need for rhythm. But God has been saying it to us all along. So here's the challenge. As you work on your rule of life, think about rhythm. Think about your daily rhythm. When do you stop and rest? When do you take time um, to spend resting and, and to spend with those close to you? And think about your weekly rhythm. Do you take a day to pray and to play a Sabbath? And think about your seasonal rhythms. When, when you plan your year, do you, do you plan in time off from work, time for fun, time for friends, time for family, time for spiritual retreat, time for focused mission? Again, this morning, as Ann said, we'll take time at 11.15 in the lounge to work on our rule of life and especially to, to talk about these Sabbath rhythms and how they may fit into that. As Terrence said, there's also uh, people available right after the service in the lounge if you'd like prayer about these things or anything else. So let's pray. God, thank you for not being a harsh taskmaster who drives us to work and to work and to work. Thank you that you give us the gift of Sabbath. You invite us to stop and to celebrate and to rest, to enjoy the fruit of our work and the life you've put us in. You've chosen to make us not like you, infinite, but you've chosen to make us with limits, 
And some of us have been fighting those limits our whole lives, trying to be infinite like you. Help us to embrace our limits, to, to live a rhythm which goes counter to the jangled rhythms of this world. And it's hard to keep up your rhythm in a world with all these competing cacophony of rhythms. But help us together to, to persevere in that and through that to know you more, to experience the life that you have for us. Thank you that ultimately these rhythms point to Jesus who gives us ultimate rest from our work, that we can rest in you and your love. We don't have to work hard to please you. Thank you for giving us rest. Amen.